Bibles, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And I say to you, hear the word of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you're here visiting for the first time, obviously we're in the middle of of Christmas season or Advent, and Advent is where we celebrate ultimately the coming of Jesus. We celebrate the coming of Jesus the first time, but really in some ways we look forward to his coming at the end of time. And this Advent season we're doing things a little differently, at least preaching-wise. Usually I just preach the lectionary, which is basically what the, the church calendar dictates. And this year I'm doing the first two chapters of Matthew. And the reason I'm doing the first two chapters of Matthew is because I wanted to look through at Advent through the eyes of trauma or through the lens of trauma. And as we've looked at the, the book of Matthew, I hope up to this point you've seen there's a lot of traumatic things that are happening in and around the birth of Jesus. Which leads me to my first question today. The first question is this. How are Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and Jesus alike? What do they have in common? On the surface of it, you say it's stupid. One's real and one's not. On the other hand, if you begin to think, Judy and I watched the watched it last night again, by the way. And it, it, just as a side note, after doing like a year of trauma counseling, like Santa's pretty like bad in Rudolph. <laughs> like I don't know if I want to watch it again. I was a little bit horrified. But if you think about Rudolph and Jesus both, when from the minute they were born, they were despised and they were rejected, and they, they were scorned, and they were not accepted. We know, we know, in hindsight, they're both heroes, right? Rudolph's the hero of that story, ultimately. 
Jesus is the hero of our story, it's easy to forget that the world that they enter into was not just difficult, but the world they entered into was particularly hostile to them. Rudolph's world was particularly hostile to him. I mean, <laughs> like... <laughs> like Donner saying, don't hang out with Rudolph. He doesn't get to play any games, right? Why? Because he's a different nose? That's crazy. It, but it what, is what it is. And we see Jesus from the moment that he was born is pursued. Jesus from the moment he is born is scorned. Jesus from the moment he is born, he is despised. So despised that that even becomes his name. We'll see that at the end of the text today. Basically up to this point, what we've seen is, remember, we looked at the genealogies, and then after the genealogies, we looked at the birth of Jesus and really the role of Joseph in that. Last week, we looked at the Magi and how the Magi approached the Christ. This week, we are going to look at um, the, the Holy Family's flight into Egypt and the return, and also the, this famous passage called the Slaughter of the Innocents. Now, it's interesting. I, I've been preaching for almost 25 years. I've never preached the passage I'm preaching today. And part of the reason is because I usually follow the church calendar. And the church calendar, for whatever reason, skips it usually. And I think part of the reason they skip it is because it's a very hard and traumatic passage. It doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? Well, I hope today you see that it's, it, it's at, at the core, it's all about Christmas. It's all about the gospel. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at a new Israel, we're going to look at a new Moses, and we're going to look at a new name. That's the things we see today. A new Israel, new Moses, and a new name. And all of those things, by the way, are Jesus. You could put the three points today are Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay, so first point, Joseph's dream. Notice it says in verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, that's the Magi, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child to his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So just to begin with, remember it says now when they had departed. He's talking about the Magi. Remember that Herod cut a deal with the Magi. The Magi were these wise men from the east, and they got a sign that the Jewish Messiah had been born, so they went to Jerusalem. That's where they assumed the Jewish Messiah would be. And instead they found this puppet king, Herod. He had been placed in, in placed by the Romans, and he was a ruthless dictator. And they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod sort of mentally went, skrr. You know, like, what am I supposed to do here? And so he called his wise men, and they said he'll be born in Bethlehem. Herod calls the Magi and says, hey, here's the deal, guys. He, I, mean, I mean, most tyrants are pretty, pretty savvy when they want to be. Here's the deal, guys. This, this new Messiah is in Bethlehem. So what I want you to do is just go find him. And then when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. And of course, the whole time he planned on just killing him. Well, the Magi went, they met the Holy Family, they saw Jesus, they fell down and worshipped him, and they, being warned in a dream, went home by another way. They didn't go back to see Herod. They didn't tell Herod what was going on. And at the same time, Joseph apparently is having this dream, and the angel says, you need to take your child and its mother and flee to Egypt, because Herod wants to kill this child. And so, why would he tell them to flee to Egypt? Well, practically speaking, Egypt was like right there. It was the next door neighbor to Israel. And also, Egypt had a, had a tremendously large Jewish population. 
especially Alexandria, Egypt. And they have money from the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the angels come and say, go to Egypt. So practically speaking, going to Egypt made all the sense in the world. Remember, this is the New Testament times. This isn't like back during the time of Moses where Egypt is just hostile. It's more sort of cosmopolitan now. And there was a large Jewish community that they could blend into quite easily. And so he says, take the child to Egypt and hide out from Pharaoh. So practically speaking, Egypt was the place they should have gone. But also theologically speaking, Egypt is the place where they needed to be. And notice what he says in verse 15. It says, they remained in Egypt till the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew cites Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He says, this was to fulfill out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we're going to see lots of prophecies here, and it's going to be helpful for you to keep in mind that when Matthew cites a, a prophecy, it's, he's not saying it was predicted and it was fulfilled, right? Most people, when they talk about prophet, prophecies in the New Testament, and they're like, there are all these prophecies that were predicted, they were fulfilled. When Hosea wrote that, he wasn't predicting anything. He was telling a story about Egypt, and he was telling a story about, or I mean, about Israel and about Israel's relationship to God. And God's relationship to Israel, God's relationship to Israel was quite tenuous. In, in other words, in Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then immediately we begin to hear about what a horrible son Israel was. Remember, Adam was God's first, firstborn son. Israel was God's, called God's firstborn son. And God's firstborn son was horrible. God's firstborn son came out of Egypt and all they did was complain and be disobedient. And so, I mean, if you think about it, like I was, I was, I've watched, I mean, I'm, I'm already way caught up on this, but um, on Netflix, one of my favorite, like, binge series is Greenleaf. I don't know if you've seen Greenleaf. Greenleaf is about a, a, a fictional uh, African-American black megachurch in the South. And this, basically, this family, like, runs the whole, the, you know, the dad is the pastor and the mom's the executive pastor and the daughter's the worship leader. And it's huge. I mean, it's like tens of thousands of people. And one of the things you see in the course of the series is whenever people greet each other, they say, God is good. And how do you respond to that? All the time. God is good. All the time. That's how you know it's fictional. Because people in church don't act like that. At least not most of the time, and at least not if they're being honest. People in Israel didn't act like that. Imagine ancient, ancient Israel, you're walking up and see somebody, God is good! And they'd say, yeah, but, mm, you taste the manna? Mm. I don't know about that. Or church, right? God is good! Yeah, can you believe they're making some more mass? Come on. Like, can we talk about that? I mean, it, it's not this robust, you know, back and forth. Israel wasn't like that. The church, generally speaking, isn't like that. We have positive moments, but generally speaking, we don't tend to be uh, excited about God. We don't tend to, to be zealous. We don't tend to think that he's always out to do us good. That's a problem. And when, the, when Matthew says, out of Egypt I call, this was to fulfill the words, out of Egypt I call my son, he basically is saying that Jesus is actually the fullness of these words. That Jesus, what we see Jesus doing here, God doing in and through Jesus, is Jesus is going down into Israel, and figuratively speaking, theologically speaking, he is going to relive the life of Israel. Right? Israel went down into Egypt, and they 
sojourned there for a time, and then they came out. Jesus is going to go down into Egypt and then so do sojourn there for a while and then come out. Historians call that recapitulation. He's going to recapitulate the life of Israel in Egypt. And he does that because he lives the life that they should have lived. The life that they should have lived, they failed at miserably. The life that they should have lived, the, the blessings that they should have embraced, the praise that they should have given, they failed. Jesus, on the other hand, will fulfill all of those expectations. Jesus will live the life that they should have lived. Does that sound familiar to you? Because the same thing is true of us. Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. We often think, like if you're a Christian or you, you just have little contact with the Christian faith, or even if you grab someone on the street and say, hey, what did Jesus do? If they're, they're educated at all, they say, well, I guess he died for people's sins, right? He died on a cross. And that's true. But just as important as Jesus' death on the cross is the life that he lived before because he was living that life also in our place. So he lived his life in our place, and then he died his death in our place. And at the end of the day, the same is true for us. And basically, what is our part in all of this? Our part in all this is to believe. Our part in all this is to have faith that what Jesus has done, our part is to say, okay, Jesus lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death that I should have died And that is enough, that God is satisfied with that. And if God is satisfied with that, I don't have to keep walking through life, looking over my shoulder, wondering if God, if I've done enough, wondering if I've been a good enough person. Trust me, you haven't been. But that's okay. Because Jesus was good enough on your behalf. And our part is believing. Would you believe that? If you're visiting, you ever heard that before. Would you consider that? That you, you can live a different kind of life. You can live a life that's actually free of guilt and shame. A life that is becoming more and more, instead of struggling to be free, you can now be free to struggle. And another reason I think Matthew inserts these prophecies in his text is to remind us that God has been at work long before this ever started to happen. In other words, this what's happening with Jesus isn't just some new thing. It, it, it isn't plan B or plan C or plan D or plan L, whatever it is. It is the original plan. God has been thinking about this plan since the beginning of time. And he has given clues along the way of how it's going to pan out. One of the ways it would pan out is that Jesus would sojourn down into Egypt and basically become the new Israel. And then he would also come out. So God hasn't forgotten his covenant or his promises. And that's where Matthew goes next. We talk about the slaughter of the innocents. Verse 16 says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had spoken, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what's a historical perspective on the slaughter of the innocents. The historical perspective on the slaughter of the innocents is interesting because most secular historians would say that this never happened. Most secular historians say, well, you can't find this story in any other place outside the New Testament, and because of that, we don't think it happened. So if that's true, that it didn't really happen, then Matthew is like the worst salesman of all time. 
Right? I mean, think about it. You're trying to sell this thing. You're trying to sell the story of Jesus, and you're going to insert a story that you're not even sure is true about babies being killed? I wouldn't do that. So I think it's probably true. In fact, I know the Bible says it's true. So the question isn't um, if it didn't happen or why didn't they do it. I mean, well, let me talk about that for a second. Why wouldn't it be recorded? Basically, it wouldn't have been recorded because, one, it was, probably, it was done in secret or secretly. Herod didn't, like, announce it from the rooftops, go kill all the children in Bethlehem, which, by the way, Bethlehem and their surrounding regions, they estimate, was probably no more than 1,000 total residents. And, and when you boil that all down, it would have probably been between 10 and 20 children. So we tend to think of slaughter of the innocents, like Herod was going through, and there were just thousands and thousands of babies. It was probably like 10 or 15, maybe, which is, is horrible if that's your family. But in the big scope of things with Herod, let me tell you how bad Herod was. <laughs> how bad was he? Herod was so bad, bad that basically he killed, before his own death, he killed the last of the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a high priest, high Jewish high priest. He killed half of the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 of his own courtiers. Get this, he killed his own wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons. To kill 10 or 15 babies from an obscure village in secret would have been like a slow mourning for Herod. So I'm not surprised that the, the secular historians of the day didn't make that out like it's a big deal. So the question is, it, it, we can understand why they wouldn't record it, but why did Matthew record it? Why was it important for him to record it? And there are a few reasons I have here. One is it establishes Jesus as a new Moses. Um, basically, if you, if you look at this, it says... Um, Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region that were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. That sounds much like the, the story in Exodus, right? That, that in Exodus, you had a hostile Pharaoh who was trying to kill the one who was sent to deliver God's people before he could even make it out of the womb or, or shortly after he made it out of the womb. And what Matthew is telling us, that story is being relived in the person of Jesus, that just as, as Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, so this new Pharaoh, Herod, is trying to kill the deliverer of God's people. And just as Pharaoh failed to kill the deliverer of God's people, Herod will fail to kill the deliverer of God's people. He will escape. He will go into the wilderness and he will come back and he will lead his people out of bondage and into freedom. Because Jesus is not only the new Israel, he not only represents and relives the life of God's people, people, those who would be delivered, but he also is the one who will do the delivering. He, is, he identifies with, the, with those needing saved, and he is the one who actually accomplishes salvation. He is both man and God. What else do we know? It shows us that Jesus is the one who would end his people's exile. Right? You have to, in some ways, to understand the slaughter of the innocents and to understand, I think, what Matthew is getting at here. You have to understand the, the Israel's exile and what happened there. So first of all, Rachel. Notice it mentions the, the Rachel here. It says that Rachel that was fulfilled by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, a few things. Rachel weeping here is figurative. 
Remember, Rachel was the wife of Joseph, and she was known to be the mother of Israel. People thought of her as the mother of Israel. She was buried somewhere near Bethlehem. And in Jeremiah, the picture is that as Israel is being taken away into exile, especially the children, remember, they, they took the youngest and the brightest and the best, and as they are being dragged away into exile past Bethlehem, past Rachel's grave, that she is weeping for them as they are going by, that she's weeping for her children, Israel. And that they are no more, that they're not going to return. Now, here's what's interesting. This passage in Jeremiah is the most, one of the most encouraging passages in the whole Bible. This quote from Jeremiah comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, among other things, contains the new covenant, right, that we hear about all the time. Let me read to you what the verses surrounding it. So I'm going to read you the the verse that Matthew quotes, and then the two after. It says, Thus says the Lord, a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because there are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and the children shall come back to their own country. In in other words, the verses right before that says, then the young women shall rejoice and dance and the young men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy and comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So what is Matthew doing here? I think what he's telling them, if you read the passage in Jeremiah, what God is saying to Rachel, he says, Rachel, I understand you're weeping for your children who are no more, but stop weeping because I am going to make this right. Stop weeping because I'm I'm going to to bring goodness out of this trauma. I'm going to, to bring health and wellness and prosperity and joy out of this trauma that that basically What it says is that even in the face of the worst possible tragedies, God is at work. For Israel, the exile was the worst possible tragedy. They couldn't, in their minds, have imagined anything more than to be dragged away from the place where their God was located, where they had lived for years, and be taken away, never to return. But what Matthew, I think, is saying here, that we should understand that in all of these events surrounding the the birth of Jesus, all of this trauma, that even when things seem to be at their, their, they couldn't possibly be worse, that God is still at work. And there's something else I think that's important to recognize here as to why Matthew includes this slaughter of the innocents here. Because it really isn't a big selling point. (laughs) I wonder if Matthew is including the slaughter of the innocents here simply because he's being pastoral. Some of the women who lost children to the slaughter of the innocents were probably alive at the time of Matthew's writing this. They were probably older. They were probably maybe grandmothers or great-grandmothers by that time. And imagine them hearing the story of Jesus and all that comes to their mind. That's why I lost my baby. My baby was killed because of him. Like, I think Matthew is acknowledging their trauma, right? You can't deal with trauma and abuse and things like that until you begin to start acknowledging it. And Matthew acknowledges it. This actually happened, and it was a hard thing, but even in the hardest of things, God is still at work, right? I can't imagine anything worse than losing a baby in in many ways. Judy and I had lost a baby 25 years ago. Uh, it, it, it was a, a miscarriage about after, right about the end of the third trimester. And I still think about that. 
I do. Now, would I change it? No. Because the baby we had right after that, we wouldn't have had, and that baby is Mercy. Like, for those of you who don't know, that's, that's her name, my child Mercy. became. And I, so what about the child we lost? I don't know, but I have to believe that God is working in and through all that for my good and his glory. So I understand it's hard, and you have to acknowledge those things sometimes. Um, it also tells us something about Jesus, the this, this slaughter of the innocents and this whole idea here. Um, let me show you something. So that picture right there is me. Okay, many of you know I went on sabbatical. I, I didn't hide it. I went on sabbatical. Uh, my father passed away. My stepfather died a month apart. They were both had their own issues, and they both were horrible fathers. And so I thought, I'm going to go do this trauma intensive. And I went, and I had to do this thing called a trauma egg. Right? You draw a big egg, like a whole poster board egg, and you have to draw pictures of traumatic events in your life or traumatic themes, and you have to do it historically. And so I had about 30 of these pictures. And the very first one, of course, is me. That's my birth. And so I had a great therapist. He, he, he was a great combination of being encouraging and snarky, and which that like re- resonates with me. And so at some point, we had this thing laid out on a table, and he leaned over and he tapped on it. Tell me about this one right here. He tapped on the picture in front of you. And I said, well, that's me. And he said, well, what's this cloud? And I just started blubbering. I was like, I just feel like I was born under a cloud. You know, that everything bad happens. And because of me, all these bad things have happened. And if this hadn't happened and that hadn't happened, that hadn't happened, he listened to me blubber. And then after he tapped it again with a little grin on his face. He said, can you think of anyone else who was born under a cloud? I was like, I knew. It was like Sunday school. I knew what I had to say. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was born under a cloud, Tommy. A lot of bad things happened around the birth of Jesus that weren't his fault. But he was able to redeem it. In other words, what's the point of telling you that? It's just this, is that while we might not understand why bad things happen and we don't understand why traumatic things happen, that we, what we can know is that we have a Savior who is sympathetic to them. If you feel like, man, I was born under a cloud, guess what? Jesus was born under a cloud. He is sympathetic with every single struggle that you are going through. And not only that, you see, Jesus escaped Herod the Great, but he wouldn't escape Herod Antipas, Herod's son, and Pontius Pilate. In other words, it would take him 33 years, but they would eventually get their hands on him, they would eventually crucify him, and they would eventually kill him. And yet, in the context of the crucifixion, the most tragic event in the history of the world, God was doing his greatest work. Can you see that? I mean, if I was Mary or if I was a disciple sitting at the cross, I would say, this is the most horrible thing. What's going on here? And yet, because they didn't have God's perspective, they couldn't understand that what was going on there was the greatest thing in the world. And it was the thing that would benefit them more than anything else. It's hard to look at our trauma that way. But when we look at the gospel, we look at the cross, we begin to understand how spectacular 
even our suffering is and how, how amazing that God can work through in, in and through all the things that we have gone through in our lives. And what makes even God's work even more spectacular, we begin to understand it by what comes next. What comes next, I think, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. In fact, it's so important. When I was reading, I don't know if you noticed the beginning, when I got that verse, I had to stop. What does Matthew say next? He talks about a new name. So we've looked at a new Israel, a new Moses, and now a new name. It says, but when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay? So basically, Herod dies, the angel comes and says, just as Moses came to Egypt to deliver his people, I want you to go from Egypt to deliver your people. He tells Joseph, take the mother and the child and go home. It's, except Joseph was afraid because one of Herod's sons, and Archelaus, by the way, apparently was as crazy as Herod and as tyrannical as ter- Herod, but he just wasn't as like smart and as efficient as Herod, so he didn't last very long. But nonetheless, there was good reason to be afraid of him, and he was in charge of the area around Jerusalem at the time. Herod Antipas was in charge of Judea and all that area, and so Joseph takes him back to the land, to Galilee. Now remember, in the New Testament, Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not the best place to be. In fact, no self-respecting Jew would would choose or want to live in Galilee. Because it was Galilee of the Gentiles, and it was basically unclean, or it was seen to be unclean. And it was seen to be sort of like the wrong side of the tracks. And the worst place in the worst area would be this place called Nazareth. That Nazareth was the, the worst possible place in all of Israel, in all, in all of the, the ancient areas to be from. And what's interesting about this passage, the reason I, I said this point is we're going to talk about a new name. The reason I'm calling this a new name for Jesus is because Matthew makes it up. Matthew, the, the verse that he quotes here, he says, it fulfills the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene is nowhere in the Old Testament. Matthew made it up. All right, case closed, let's go home. He made it up, but it is the most brilliant thing I think I've ever seen. Notice he says that Matthew saying he will be called a Nazarene fulfills what the prophets said about him, not the prophet. In other words, Matthew doesn't claim to be quoting one single prophet. He doesn't say, you know, I was reading Isaiah and Isaiah said this. Or I was reading Jeremiah and Jeremiah said this. What he's saying is that all of the prophets said that Jesus would be this. All of the prophets said that he would be a Nazarene. And the Nazarene, by the way, very simply, is just what you call a person who is from Nazareth. Right? If you're from Washington, you're a Washingtonian. Right? If you're from Oregon, you're an Oregonian. If you're from Florida, you're a Floridian. And if you're from Nazareth, you're a Nazarene. And Matthew said all of the prophets were pointing to this one thing, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Why is that important? It's important when you begin to look at what the prophets said about him. 
You see, on one hand, Nazareth was, was this place that was despised and scorned and rejected. Right? Remember when Nathaniel heard about Jesus and, and John? The other disciples come and say, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel went, seriously? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they said, come and see. That was the attitude toward Nazareth. Nazareth, by the way, I, I, I don't know if it's okay to say this, but Nazareth in, the day, in Jesus' day was the N-word. Right? You know how like in our day you're, you don't call anyone that? Rightly so. In Nazareth, you only called someone that if you really meant to put them down and to scorn them and shame them. You would never call anyone a Nazarene. Why would the, so what did the prophets say that would make Matthew think that Jesus should be called a Nazarene? Well, remember Zechariah chapters 9 through 12? It talks about Messiah is going to come. He's going to seek his sheep, but his sheep are going to reject him. And that he will be smitten by God. And that his people will also slay him. Let me read to you what it says in um, Isaiah chapter 53. Remember Psalm 22 is another one where he says God has forsaken him. Here's Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And who, from whom has the arm of the, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about this. That to be from Nazareth was to be despised and to, to be scorned and to be looked down upon. And Jesus took that as his name. In, in other words, he could have said when people said, oh, there's Jesus of Nazareth, he could have went, bup, 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 uh-uh. I'm not from Nazareth. I was born in Bethlehem. Jesus of Bethlehem. That's what I want you to call me. I don't you call me that in word. Jesus not only lets people call him that, he embraces it and he owns it. And what does it mean that Jesus embraces and owns the worst possible name? That means that Jesus is accessible to anybody. In other words, Jesus went to the very bottom. He said, here's the way I want you to look at me. Here's how I will be named as if I were a person at the very bottom of the socioeconomic scale, the very bottom of of any caste system, the very bottom of anything. Jesus goes all the way to the bottom. And because Jesus is all the way at the bottom, what that means is he is accessible to anybody. Let me ask you this. Do you think... Do you think you're a terrible sinner? Do you carry around a lot of guilt, shame? Jesus isn't surprised by that. Jesus is not afraid to be associated with you. Most people, at least in my experience, think, gosh, man, if people knew my sins, they wouldn't talk about like being forgiven all the time. But you know what? Jesus isn't afraid of your sins. And not only is he not afraid of your sins, he's not afraid to take them on himself and give you a new record of righteousness. He's not afraid to take your shame upon himself and give you a new record of esteem in the eyes of the Father. Why wouldn't you take that? 
How couldn't you take that? He takes our sins and our disgraces that we might have the approval and esteem in the eyes of God. And I close with this. You know, one of my favorite books, it might be my favorite book in the world, is a book by Frederick Buechner entitled The Book of Beb. And The Book of Beb, Beb is a, he's a preacher, and as you read it, you laugh and you cry, and sometimes you think, man, this guy's a charlatan. And other times you think, wow, he gets it more than most people. And he always sort of like catches you off guard. And so the, the passage, I want to read you this passage from the book of Beb, where he is, he's, he's been at Princeton, and he's, he's trying to evangelize people at Princeton, and he gets in a fight with this atheist professor. And the atheist professor tries to throw him off, tries to confuse him, or, or tries to scare him away by using a, a four-letter word that rhymes with spit. I checked with the editorial council at my home, and there I was informed I shouldn't read it like that, so I'm going to replace that word with the word crap. Okay. So this is Leo Beb explaining to his son-in-law this discussion he had with this atheist professor. Okay, and I'm going to read it probably in the voice that I hear him in my head. And he says, Antonio is his son-in-law. He says, Antonio, I use that word crap to him till it begin to sound like I invented it. In other words, the guy used the word on him to scare him off as a preacher, and the preacher came back at him with the same word. And he says, he caught me by surprise. I caught him by surprise, preacher talking about things like, Antonio, crap is what preacher's been talking about since Moses, except the word they're most likely to use is sin. Only Roebuck didn't know that. Shut him up for a minute. Then he said, if the world's mostly crap, Beb, where's God? Just like that, where's God? As if I could say, look, there he is, Roebuck. He's got he's squeezed into one of those books you got on your shelves. Or he's a zillion miles northeast of the Milky Way. He's catching 40 winks over in Alexander Hall until the next love feast gets off the ground. That Roebuck, he was like a bird floating in the sky, asking where's the air. Only I didn't say that then because I didn't think of it until later. I said, I tell you about crap, Roebuck. Take it from an expert. There's two main things about it. One thing is it's stink and corruption and waste. The other thing is if you don't pile it up too thick, can any one place it makes seeds grow? I said, Roebuck, God's where there's seeds growing. God's where there's something no bigger than the head of a pen starting to inch up out of the stink and dark of crap towards the light of sky. And I said, Roebuck, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son down here into the crap with the rest of us so that something green could happen, something small and green and hopeful. That's what it means for Jesus to be called the Nazarene. That God sent him down here into the crap with the rest of us. We're not alone. And you know what? You never have been. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, encourage us as we look at even this, this difficult passage about the slaughter of the innocents, that you would encourage us with your faithfulness in and through tragedy and your ability to redeem it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. And amen.